Howdy and welcome to the 10-week Bible study. This is week five, day two of our study of Joshua. I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and today we're talking about Joshua 11, 12 through 23. Well, welcome back to the 10-week Bible study. Again, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs. Would you join me as we pray before we start today? Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to hear what your word has to say to us? Fill our hearts with the knowledge of you today, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. With that, let's jump into God's word of reading today from the NIV. This is Joshua 11, starting in verse 12. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. All right, so... Joshua burns Hazor. Now, I, I don't know exactly why Joshua's burning some and not others. Um, I, I mean, again, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you're you're going in and, and you're burning these cities that you want to go in and take. I mean, Moses told them, God told them through Moses, hey, I'm giving you houses, I'm giving you fields, I'm giving you vineyards, I'm giving all this stuff. And, uh, and so they go in and, and burn this stuff, but maybe... Um, because the Lord, at least what we have recorded in scripture, the Lord didn't tell Joshua to do this. Now, maybe, right. It could be that Joshua, that God told Joshua to burn Hazor and it's just not recorded here for us. That's entirely possible. And that's why he did it. Um, but it's interesting that he, it tells us that God told him to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots, uh, but left out burning of Hazor. So who knows? But at any rate, if if I'm having to just superimpose on Joshua a motive for this, uh, maybe he's burning Hazor just to show everyone that hey, you want to rebel against us, you want to you want to try and mount this kind of rebellion against us, we're going to destroy you and uh, eliminate even your city from existence. Now, Hazor, as it turns out, was actually probably one of the most powerful cities in all of what would be considered Canaan. Um, I'm sure there's disagreement over that, but, but there seems to be some, um, <clears throat> at least agreement to some level of importance amongst archeologists and, and historians and, and people who've looked into this is that, that Hazor was actually a, a, a very fortified city, a very powerful city and, and a very important city in this region. And so the fact that Joshua essentially just steps in is like, yeah, done with you and and destroys the whole thing. Uh, if all of these people that we've already found out are all terrified, they're petrified of the Israelites. The moment they heard about them coming out of Egypt and coming that way, they're, they're, they're terrified. The moment they hear about them crossing the Jordan River, they're, they're, they're absolutely terrified. But after hearing that the Israelites just with no problem whatsoever destroyed Hazor, and killed all of the kings of the cities that allied with them and then took those cities, that has to strike perpetual fear into all of the rest of the kings of this area. And as, as it turns out, what we're going to find out is this is getting close. We are drawing close to the end of the campaigns. Now understand what we've seen up to this point in the book of Joshua. This has gone over a couple of years at this point. And so this is not just a, a couple month campaign. They've been coming back to Gilgal and, and, and regrouping. And, and so th there's time passing here. But this, this thing right here, if, if nothing else, this right here is, is going to be the tail end 
of the the main campaigns in Israel in essentially after this. Now, this is not 100% true. There's going to be little skirmishes and things here and there. But essentially, after this, uh, no one, no one dares attack the Israelites. Not like this. Not like this. And so, if I were to give Joshua grade on the on the value of keeping Hazor for their people to live in versus burning it, um, I say you go for it and burn it, Joshua, because this sends a message to everybody and they apparently pay attention. Uh, verse 13, Yet Israel did not burn any of the other cities on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. Verse 14, The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now again, I've talked about this before, but since it says this, I want to speak about it again. The, the destruction of the people, the, the killing off of all of the people in these cities, this nowadays the strikes it just hits people wrong and part of that is because again if you read this out of context I mean you just look at it on its face right here and be like oh my gosh this is what god said to do is to kill them all and there's there's been plenty of people um that have suggested well if if that's what your god says i want nothing to do with your god um if this were the only thing that the Bible had to say about this, man, they might have a point because this is this without any other context to understand what's going on here. This would sound pretty rough. And in, in fact, I like to say that uh, I, I feel like a lot of what we're seeing in this was was popularized. Now, people have have struggled with these things for for generations, but it was popularized by what I like to call the angry atheists, the atheists that say uh, there is no God and I hate him. Uh, right They're They're trying to find fuel to essentially proselytize toward uh, atheism or toward deconstruction, just getting people not to believe in Christianity or, or Jesus or God anymore. And the, the problem with all of that is, is, is it's, I think it's quite academically dishonest. If you are reading this, I think anyone would want to know, oh my gosh, God said to kill all of these people? Well, the Bible is a pretty big book. I wonder if the Lord ever gave any reason or if there's any background information on why they should have died. Because if we are to go on reading throughout the rest of Scripture, this doesn't really seem like it's in the nature of God just to go wantonly killing people. You know, um, people people tend to have this mindset of God. I've heard the the old phrase, and I just love the imagery. You know, that that the people think that God is just trying to shake them over hell on a rotten stick, and. Um, People have that fear. People have that kind of embedded in them for a number of reasons, culturally, other things. But when you read through the text of Scripture, that doesn't so much bear out. He's patient. He's kind, right? I mean, the Israelites, he just bears with them, and he makes a, a way for them to be redeemed through the law. If anything, the law is not about, you know, kind of telling you what you can and can't do. I mean, that's definitely part of it. But a lot of it is the redemption, the fellowship aspect is that God wants fellowship with us. 
The whole narrative of Scripture, the whole of the Bible, is about the sacrifice that Jesus makes so that we can fellowship with God. And so, this thing right here where God is saying, just wipe them all out, that seems very peculiar in light of what God has done for us throughout the rest of Scripture. And in fact, we find something very similar in the book of Revelation, because one of the the, the criticism that often come up, and, and this has become a very popular mantra, is that we need to decouple ourselves from the Old Testament because of passages like this, that we need to, as the, as the Christian church, we need to distance ourselves from things like this. Because we want to we wanna follow the Jesus that's just kind of all loving and caring. He's, he's cool and nice, and he's the kind of guy you just want to have a beer with because he's kind of cool with whatever, whatever's going on and just however you are right now. You know, he's like the Disney Jesus, right? Um, you're perfect just the way you are. You don't need to change a thing. Um, that's kind of the modern mentality about Jesus. So it's like, let's let's not do the Old Testament God. Let's do the New Testament Jesus. And the biggest problem with that is when we read who Jesus is, when he comes back in the book of Revelation, he's going to do this. He's actually going to put to death millions of people, not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. He's going to put to death millions, even billions of people. We see in the book of Revelation that actually half the population of the earth dies in a relatively short period of time. And so that that right there, that we can't comport this idea that there's a New Testament Jesus who's kind of like the big teddy bear softy guy and the Old Testament God is kind of like wrathful and vengeful and all that. We don't want him, uh, but we want the New Testament guy. And the problem is you can't have one or the other. You just can't because the Old Testament God, yes, he pours out wrath. Yes, he enacts vengeance on behalf of, of other people. He says, like, you don't take vengeance. Vengeance is mine to take on your behalf. So when God takes vengeance, it's not for himself. It's on behalf of those who serve him. And yet, he, yes, he pours out wrath. But in the New Testament, we don't, you know, we don't have a God who's just all squishy teddy bear. We have a God who pours out bowls of the wrath of God. In fact, in Revelation, where it talks about the bowls being poured out, it says it's the fullness of the wrath of God. So in fact, if there is a wrathful God somewhere in scripture, it's the New Testament God who is the most wrathful in human history. But he's pouring out his wrath on those that are destroying his people. He's pouring out vengeance on those that are destroying his people. And again, in the New Testament, we don't just have this Jesus that wants to save you so that you can live forever with him. We have that in them and he does that. Like that's the, the most amazing thing that he's done for us. But we have that in the Old Testament too. God makes a way for the people of, of God, his people to be reconciled to him. And so the Old Testament is not a wrathful, vengeful God with no grace, and the New Testament isn't a grace, gracious God with no wrath and vengeance. They are one and the same. There is no difference. Old Testament to New Testament. He is the same God forever, past, present, and future. He doesn't change. And so we have to wrap our minds around this and understand that the reasoning behind God saying, wipe them out, is because of how wicked they were. And we have examples all throughout Scripture of the wickedness. We read through Genesis. We read through Judges. We see some of the wickedness 
of the Canaanites. But more than anything else, we have the we have the the testimony of God Himself saying, "They are so wicked that I'm going to completely destroy them. I'm going to use you to completely destroy them. That's how wicked they are." And so it is inappropriate to take this out of context without understanding, without asking, without having any curiosity within us to ask, why would the Lord say to do this? Because the answers are there if we're willing to look for them. Verse 16. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and put them to death. Joshua waged war against all the kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. Now, I want to point out here, we're going to come back to this on Friday. This one statement here causes us to ask some questions when we get to some of these extra biblical texts, but I think we have some at least decent, um, I don't know about answers, but some decent theories about how this comports with some of the extra biblical evidence. Verse 20, for it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites live any, were left in Israel, Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did they survive. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions. Then the land had rest from war. So like I said, there is this period here where they are are campaigning, and then the, the land has rest. Now, the one, the one thing in there, right, is this massive campaign uh, what the Bible here is essentially telling us is they have this massive campaign, but that wasn't the end of it, right? So it's it's kind of uh, doing this uh, yada 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 moment here where we're where we're kind of breezing through a whole bunch of stuff. The war wasn't over after this campaign. It says that Joshua continues to attack them, but this was the biggest campaign. This was the biggest victory. This is kind of like, uh, you don't go on listing all of like the little victories and telling those stories when you're like, you just told the big one, right? This is... Uh, this is the amazing victory. This is the, the, the pinnacle moment here. And so it's just going to breeze through the rest of those campaigns that happened over a few years. And then after all that war's over, then the land had rest. This is kind of a break point in the book of Joshua where we're going to go a little bit from the narrative into some of the uh, housekeeping and accounting, if you will. Before we're done today, I want to go back to the maps and here we see, I've got this one titled, uh, Israel Subdued. And so it's telling us here that Joshua has essentially subdued all of this area from uh, Mount Hermon, Belgad up there, all the way down to the Negev and to Mount Halak. We don't know where Mount Halak is, actually. Um, we know that this is the region of Seir down here south of the the Dead Sea. Um 
when he's referring to the Araba, we're talking about all of this land kind of in here, the lowlands around the the Jordan River, if you will. And so uh, he's conquered all of this, but we don't really have good access to the Mediterranean Sea, essentially. So this is kind of a rough outline of what Joshua conquered. Now, uh, later in the book, we're going to actually look at and evaluate where all of the tribal divisions are, where the land was split up. Um, and, and it will kind of make sense. And so there's, there's a bit of, um, the perfect promises of God for what the land was supposed to be and the imperfect acquisition of it. And we're and, and, and we know from judges that, uh, the Lord actually partly did this on purpose as he didn't let them conquer it all at once. He left enemies at the land so that they would never, uh, lose their ability to, to fight and, and maintain war. He didn't want them getting soft. Essentially. He wanted them, uh, ready, willing, and able to stand up for their land that he had given them. And so it's going to be a long process that's actually not completed for hundreds of years until the time of King David. When King David comes along 400-ish years later, that's when he's the first person who conquers the entirety of the land that God promised to the Israelites through Moses. Up until then, there is just going to be, they, they can't take it all. They can't take it all. They, there's not enough of them. They don't have the ability to for various reasons. And so they don't get it all. But back to the map again, generally, this area is what they took. Now, I will say, if you are listening to this, um, if there was ever a time where you wanted to make time to listen to some or watch some of the videos, uh, every one of these is, is recorded on video and posted on YouTube. If there was ever a time that you wanted to just... Uh, watch some of these, I would say this week and probably next week, you definitely want to, especially day five of this week where we're talking about the extra biblical sources. It's going to be a little bit of a, a picture show. You can definitely pick up a lot just listening to it. Uh, scripture is very clear. You can learn a lot just from listening. But Joshua, as it turns out, is a very uh, visual heavy book, right? It helps to have a map. It really just helps have a map. Otherwise, it's just names of towns and places that don't exist anymore, and it can all kind of seem fake and, and fairy tale like But when you start to see the archaeology, when you start to see the reality of the land and how all of this comes together, I think it really adds a lot. And so this really is one of those places where the, the maps and the imagery and, and anything that I can add to it helps a lot for the study of this. And so for the next several sessions here, probably the next week or two, the maps are going to be pretty intense so that we can kind of visualize where all of these places are, where the kings were, where the cities are going to be. We're going to see cities of refuge. We're going to see uh, Levite cities. We're just going to see so much and it's just going to be thrown at us so fast that it's easy when you're just reading through, just kind of gloss over because like, I don't know where any of this is. I don't know what it means. Blah. Right. But all of this stuff is important. The Lord put it in here and wanted us to remember this forever for a reason. And so I want to handle this carefully and, and treat it with the respect that it's due. And so that's why I'm, I'm uh, trying to focus on the maps here and do a good job with the maps. And uh, I would love to interact with you, get feedback on the YouTube channel, on the videos, 
over these maps that I've created and, and let me know if they're helpful or not. And for those of you listening that can't, don't have time to just sit down and watch these things, I totally get that. I totally get that. But I think that some of these videos, if you just had to, to, to pick and choose, some of the videos in the next couple of weeks would be quite helpful in understanding a lot that's going on here. For the 10-Week Bible Study, I'm your host, Aaron Hibbs, and I can't wait to see you next time. Hey, thanks for tuning into the 10-Week Bible Study Podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a review for it on your podcast app of choice? It really helps other people find out about this podcast, and my heart is for people to fall in love with God's Word. Thank you.